Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knutson had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and this is the podcast specifically for civil engineers who want to succeed. In today's episode, I talk with Scott Jennings, principal of SJ Construction Consulting, LLC, and we're going to talk about civil construction cost estimating. Honestly, I'm surprised we haven't tackled this yet on the Civil Engineering Podcast because it is a really important aspect of being a good and practical civil engineer is understanding how to price out projects. Whether you have to do it or not, it can only help you. It can only make you more knowledgeable in your conversations with your clients, with your colleagues, with your bosses, with your staff, because you have a better handle on how much something should cost. And Scott's really going to dig into that. I mean, he's done, I believe he said thousands of estimates, which is great. It's great to have an expert like that on the podcast and kind of make that information available to you. Before we get into our civil engineering conversation of the week with Scott, I do want to take a moment to recognize our sponsor for today's episode, PPI. Actually, I have some exciting news. PPI, our exclusive exam prep podcast sponsor, is giving away $100 Amazon gift cards every month to our listeners. For more information on how to qualify, make sure to listen to my announcement later on in the episode. All right, now I want to take a minute to tell you about a new program we'll be launching in early October called the Engineering Management Accelerator. This is a five-week intensive online program open to 30 engineers who will go through a series of skill-building courses aimed at helping them go from engineer to manager and beyond. But wait a second. Here's the kicker with this one. This is not just any old online course. At the beginning of this workshop, you will be paired up with a small group of other top-performing engineers that are enrolled in the program, and you'll be given a major management problem or project. You'll also be given a forum online where you can collaborate with your group and a coach. Over the five weeks, using the course material, the coaching, and your team members through the forum, you will present a solution with your team to that problem at the end of the course. And after the course, you will present the solution to your colleagues in your company as a lunchtime presentation or something like that. Again, this is set up this program to push you to your limits. The work will be outside of work hours. So the two hours a week, that'll be sessions. will be maybe one in the middle of the day, one in the evening. And then you'll do the teamwork on your own through the forum with your group. But I want to push you out of your comfort zone right? By making you think in a management way, by trying to build these skills quickly and presenting a problem. And who knows, this solution that you create, when you present it to your company, they may actually use it, which could then help you immediately accelerate into management or beyond the management position you're in right now. I'm really excited about it. I want to build this program big time. We're going to do it four times a year starting in 2018, but this is going to be our pilot program. So pricing will be the lowest it will ever be. So for more information and a one-page PDF you can present to your firm for reimbursement, you can visit engineertomanager.com or email me at anthony at engineeringcareercoach.com. I also plan to put a video at engineertomanager.com to explain it to you. 
All right, now I'd like to introduce our guest for today's civil engineering conversation, just so you get to know a little bit more about him before we dive in. Scott Jennings has spent over 25 years working in the heavy civil construction industry. His foundation for construction knowledge and hard work started laboring for his family's construction business and then continued with both the bachelor's and master's degree in civil engineering. He currently holds professional engineering certifications in Hawaii, Washington, and California. Upon graduation from college, Jennings started his career as a field engineer. He progressed to division manager before founding his own construction company. No longer the owner of his construction and engineering companies, he now concentrates on helping contractors, designers, owners, insurance carriers, and sureties with construction matters. With hundreds of construction and engineering projects under his belt from coast to coast and in Hawaii, Mr. Jennings is well-versed in matters of claim preparation and support, professional engineering services, pre-construction services, project management, and litigation support. Again, this was a great episode because I think it's a topic that more civil engineers need to learn about to make you a more well-rounded civil engineer. So let's get into today's civil engineering conversation. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. It's now time for our Civil Engineering Conversation, and I'm excited today to welcome Scott Jennings to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Scott, welcome. Thanks, Anthony. All right, Scott. So I introduced you to the audience earlier about your background. Just tell us a little bit about your career in your own words and how you got to where you are today. I went off to college up in the Philadelphia area and got a civil engineering degree. And I had always wanted to be in the construction field, although I got a civil engineering degree. I never really spent that much time in design. So throughout college, I co-opted in construction. I graduated and went into construction and just continued in that field. And 25 years later or so, I'm still in construction as a professional engineer. Worked uh, from coast to coast and even in Hawaii. So how'd you get to Hawaii? I came out of grad school at the University of Texas and went up to Seattle to work for about three years. And that company had a lot of work both in Washington State area as well as Hawaii. And we just needed so much help in Hawaii, I got shipped off on a one-way ticket. So the topic that we're going to get into today, Scott, is civil estimating, construction estimating. I mean, there's people say it different ways, contractor estimates. I guess what I want to ask you first is what exactly is your expertise? What kind of estimating are we talking about? So as stated before, Anthony, my career has been solely, just about solely in construction, which means that I am out there employing or working hand-in-hand with excavator operators and project engineers who all work for the contractor. So I've spent my career in estimating the actual cost of Joey the laborer and Billy the operator to dig a hole and lay a pipe. So what does it actually cost a contractor to shape the side of a hill or lay a pipe or set a bridge beam? So these are actual at-risk be low on bid day type bids for contractors building bridges and highways and things of that nature. So for example, if a contractor is bidding on something, they will have you assist them in preparing the estimate. Correct. Well, now at the stage of my career, I'm in now I am assisting contractors or assisting engineers in actual contractor estimates. But the previous years before the last year or so, you know, I was always the contractor. I was either acting as the estimator for the contractor, whether it was myself who owned a company or it was a, a contractor building something, I was always responsible at times during my career for putting together the actual cost of the work before we actually turned in our bid to the client. And about how many estimates have you been involved in, Scott? You know, even throughout college, Anthony, when I worked for a company in the Philadelphia area, I was working on estimates then at a, at a young age, just helping the estimators work on it, but probably thousands. 
I mean, certainly hundreds, but probably thousands over the years and sizes from $5,000 to hundreds of millions of dollars. All right, good. This is a great topic. We haven't covered this yet on the podcast. And I think this is one that's important. Speaking as someone that worked also as a civil engineer in the field, I think knowing information like this, being able to estimate things, looking at a contractor's estimate if you work as an engineer and looking at it and saying, okay, that kind of makes sense, kind of doesn't make sense. Or if you're working on the construction side, which a lot of civil engineers do, you're going to have to do these estimates. So Scott, can you kind of walk us through the process of putting together one of these estimates? What's involved? There's uh, several different types of estimates you can do, but I'll start now with just say, you know, a state bridge job. You're in uh, Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation. They put out a bridge job. The first thing that happens is they advertise a bridge, whatever, the Main Street Bridge in Philadelphia. So they put that out to bid. And the first thing you do is you access the prints, normally the drawings and the specifications. Of course, you can get online, so you download those. That's the first stage. And after the actual prints are in hand, then you do what's called a takeoff. And a takeoff is the process by which you evaluate all the plans and you determine what all the quantities are to build the job. How many lineal feet of this? How many cubic yards of that? Uh, How many pounds of rebar are going into the deck? Things of that. And after you perform a takeoff of all the quantities for which you'll associate money with later, after all that is complete, then you go into actually pricing all of those quantities like I just stated. So normally what happens is a junior person, a junior engineer will take off all the quantities and then hand them off to an estimator who's more experienced and is able to assess the actual cost of things, how many labor hours it takes, and how many pieces of equipment and the the size of equipment we need. And once it gets estimated by the estimator who assigns costs and crews and equipment to all of those quantities, then you wrap up the bid, you assign the fee, you determine the management on it, and you turn in the bid on bid day. It used to be that you turned it in an envelope and they opened it right in front of everyone, and that still happens. But of course, a lot of times these days, Anthony, they just get open electronically and low bid wins, and it's an electronic function. Yeah, you make it sound so easy on the podcast, (laughs) the whole process. Yeah, easy. But let me ask you this. Do contractors use unit pricing for their estimates, or do they evaluate each individual item in a job and customize the pricing to each of these construction activities? How detailed does it get? Yeah, that's a great question. So that is one of the major differences between estimating for an engineering firm or actually performing an estimate for a contractor. On the engineering side of the house, normally what happens is the engineers will have historical unit prices for completing things say a bridge parapet, they know that a bridge parapet normally costs, based on historical data, X dollars per lineal foot. And when they're performing an an estimate, they use those unit prices, which have been established over time. On the contractor side of things, what happens is each particular activity on a job gets individually evaluated for the number of men or women who have to be involved with with building that parapet and then the, the amount of concrete and the amount of rebar. So at a contractor level, it's down to the actual number of labor hours, Joey the laborer, has to spend patching the parapet wall after it's, after it's poured. So it always goes down to the most finite level of actual man hours and, and type of construction to be done on that particular parapet. It's very detailed. This poor guy, Joey's getting hurt. <laughs> yeah, he's busy. <laughs> he's busy. He's been working for me for a long time. Let's talk about some things that aren't so obvious in the bid, like the job site or corporate overhead. How does that get handled into these bids? So overhead, there's two basic types that I usually talk about. There is a job site overhead and a corporate overhead. So I'll just start with the job site, I guess. Job site overhead, these are costs within a job that are not directly associated with, in this example, say that parapet wall across the bridge. Job site overhead is the cost of the project manager, the cost of the trailer he's sitting in, and the copier he or she is using to make the copies. 
there's porta potties spread around the job or maybe dumpster waste. Things, uh, costs like these, they aren't directly associated with actually building that parapet, but they are necessary in order to manage the job. So job site overhead is a cost which is not directly associated with the actual work, but is necessary to get the job done. Now, separate from that, back to this job we have in Philadelphia, you know, we may be building a job in Philadelphia, but perhaps our corporate office is in Chicago. Our corporate office still has to support this job in Philadelphia, so there is a cost component to this project out of the main office, out of the corporate office in Chicago. So corporate overhead is usually figured as a percentage of the revenue. Say the job is $10 million, normally what will happen is the estimator will say, well, we normally spend, say, between 4% and 8% of the job revenue on the corporate overhead. So what will happen is after we finish estimating the job for $10 million, we'll take call it 5% of the total revenue and put that amount of money in our bid and hope to win and be able to send some money back to corporate to keep the lights on there. How is the profit? Let's go to the profit next, the profit markup. How is that handled on these estimates? Again, it's normally a percentage. Some people will evaluate it lump sum, but profit is usually just a percentage of, a lot of people like to use cost. Some people will put in a percentage of cost or a percentage of revenue as their profit. And if people just don't put a straight percentage across the job of what the profit is, you know, just saying, hey, we want to make a 7% across the job. They'll just put that number in a blank and it simply calculates it. What a lot of people like to do, me being one of them, was I like to evaluate the different types of cost in a job and from the types of cost and the proportion of those types of costs into the job, from there I calculate my fee. So let me give you an example on this $10 million job. Perhaps the job is $7 million worth of labor. This is going to have a lot of risk for us because 70% of the job is labor versus a job where maybe only you know a million dollars of the job is labor. That's only 10%. Normally, our biggest risk in construction is labor. And when there's more labor on a job, we'll normally put more fee on the job. So normally, a lot of guys will bid labor and say, I'm going to figure that my fee is going to be I'm going to take 20% of the labor and only 5% of my equipment costs and only 3% of my subcontractor costs. And based on that hybrid calculation, if you will, of certain percentages of fee getting tagged along with the, the types of costs, the fee will vary from 5% to 15% based on how much risk you have in labor or equipment or subcontractor. That's interesting. So why is that, Scott? Is it be more labor is more risk because there's more things can go wrong? Or? As you probably know from being in industry, a lot of times the hardest thing about running a business is, is the labor aspect. And it's just so expensive. A lot of projects are, are union. I'm based out of Hawaii right now. The labor rates here, they vary to be, you know, up around $75 an hour. If you get in New York City, which are probably the highest in the country, you know, they're north of $100. So if you have five guys out there working for an hour, you're burning $500 an hour and just labor. So something goes wrong and those guys are there an extra hour, extra day. It's just a lot of money spent quickly. When you're doing your estimate, you obviously, like you said before, you have an estimate of how much labor you're going to need. And then, I mean, if it's subcontractors, I'm assuming you have a really good handle on what the the pricing for that labor is going to be, right? Right. And that's a very manageable cost, Anthony. So back to this parapet job, this bridge job in Philadelphia, I'm going to subcontract out the placement of the rebar. And on bid day, the rebar subcontractor, he gave me a proposal on bid day for a million dollars. So what I'll do in my estimate is I just say, okay, well, I can get all the rebar installed for $1 million. I plug it in the bid and it's done. I then lean on him as the general contractor. I lean on him to say, hey, you had a price in here on bid day for a million bucks. I have very little risk in that, assuming that I was prudent enough to check at bid time that he actually had all the rebar and the bridge deck and over there on the sidewalk and back around the corner, maybe on those bollards. As long as he has all the rebar for all of those and I checked his scope at bid time, my risk is pretty small. 
is there ever any regulations or requirements depending on, I mean, I'm sure it could be different in different municipalities or locations, but as far as the profit, like, is there any limitations on it or is it up to the contractor? Completely up to the contractor when the owner isn't looking. And I, I don't mean that in a, a sneaky way. I just mean that, say, on this the state job we're talking about now, low bid wins. So you as the contractor have the right to put 50% profit on it, probably won't be low, or to put zero. In that case, there's no limit, but when change orders, a lot of times there are because change orders are often open book and the owner is sitting there looking directly at your bid and they usually cap it. We're going to get into that next. Before we go to change orders, though, one last question. The bids as a whole, is there an industry standard for bids to be either unit priced versus lump sum or how are they typically calculated? It really depends. With the DOTs, the Departments of Transportation, a lot of the public owners, they like to take bids in a unit price type fashion. So they've usually done a quantity takeoff of the square feet of bridge deck and the lineal feet of parapet. And they want all their prices per lineal foot of that parapet or per square foot of the bridge deck. For the reasons I stated earlier, they like to gather that information and historically track it, and then they can help estimate their work in the future. On the private side, Anthony, it, a lot of times it's lump sum. The owner doesn't want to spend the money to have an engineer actually go through and determine the quantities. They will lay all that at the contractor's feet and have them do it. So a lot of times either the contractor will have to make up and submit per the contractor's quantities or the owner says, you know what, just give me a lump sum price for the whole job and low bid wins. All right. So now I want to transition here after the project is bid, one under construction, I want to get into change orders. And as I say those two words, most of our listeners are probably cringing and (laughs) getting nervous about this conversation. But so I'm an engineer. I work on this bridge that you gave the example and the bridge is now under construction and you're working for the contractor and you come to me and say, you know, we got a problem. You guys spec'd out X amount of inches of sub-base gravel and the town or the state requirement is six inches more, three inches more. So we need an extra whole bunch of gravel and we got to install it. There's more labor. What does the process look like? What do you do as the contractor from there? We first start with the actual documents on bid day. You know, Anthony, you're the engineer on the job. The first thing I say is, hey, Anthony, I'm I'm looking at these drawings here and there's only six inches of sub-base called out. I'm happy to give you 12 inches like you're asking me to, but I'm going to charge you for the additional six inches on top of what's shown in the prints. So what is supposed to happen is I stop, or at least I try to negotiate before the work is supposed to be completed on, okay, Anthony, happy to give you an additional six inches of sub-base here. It's going to cost you X before I'm going to put in that additional six inches worth of work. I will have gone through, taken off the quantity, priced that quantity, put the price of the entire piece of added work on a piece of paper to you and say, hey, Anthony, hey, it's going to cost you know $10,000. I will proceed on this work once you authorize me to do so. And then in a perfect world, you as the engineer say, I agree, and here's your change order, and off I go. Sounds painless, but I know that there can always be a lot of back and forth on both sides. I would assume, like in any aspect of civil engineering, any aspect of business, the more documentation that's available, clearer it is, the easier the process will be. Like you said, you go back to the project documents, and you start and work from there. Yeah, you're exactly right, and uh, it never works as smoothly as I just said. I'm not talking nicely to you. You're sick of me by this point. But a lot of times as contractors and me being a contractor with a professional engineering license and degree, I often get frustrated with all the schooling I went through knowing that engineers are smart men and women. And uh, why didn't you just show the 12 inches in there when we started the job? It's usually the problem I have because a lot of times change orders come in play because something wasn't shown clearly in the documents. You hit the nail on the head. And we get frustrated on the contractor side because, hey, Anthony, you know, your team has been in there designing this job for 18 months. 
I had three weeks to look at the job and take it off, and now you're telling me that there's some hidden clause or something way back in the specs or something referred in some, you know, city of Philadelphia document which wasn't directly attached, and now you're holding me to it. And so we often get frustrated that uh, engineers and or the owner will just push that upon us, and then that's what leads to claims. Hey, it, it wasn't clearly shown. That six inches of additional rock cost me ten grand. It, it's not fair, and I don't think it's contractual, and, and that's where the beef will start. Yeah, and the reason I gave that example, maybe this is a little technical lesson for those listening, is that I remember on a job that I was working on once, we specced out a cross-section of pavement, and we specified like the pavement should be constructed as per a certain DOT standard, but then we also proceeded to detail the dimension of each layer of the pavement section. So we had like four inches of subbase, let's say, on our dimension, but the actual spec actually called for like more sub-based than what we showed. So I learned that you got to be careful. You're not going to give the dimensions and then spec that already has other dimensions in it. So that was the situation that we had, and that's how it came about. But that being said, I think you gave us some good insight there to the whole estimating process. And obviously, like Scott and I have both hinted at, I mean, we're covering this topic here in 20, 30 minutes on the podcast today, but it's a very detailed topic. It is something that Scott has spent years on doing thousands of estimates and it's not a cut and dry thing. There's negotiations, there's relationships back and forth, there's unit prices, there's locations, there's lots and lots of things that go into it. Scott, let me ask you this. I'm sure in all the estimates that you've done or you've seen or you've been involved with, there's been some that have probably come out really far off. And I'm wondering if there's one you maybe remember and you could explain kind of what happened or if you have a story around that that you could share. Yeah, you're right. There's been plenty where I've been dead last, meaning the highest bid and wondering how the heck the low bidder could do it for that price. And then I've been on the other side of the spectrum where, you know, when I had my own company, we had a job over on the island of Kauai and it was a 500,000 cubic yard earthwork job. We had to do uh, whatever it was, nine or 10 holes of a golf course. And our price came in at a little over $2 million. And the first bid they read on that bid day was $7 million. You talk about uh, not being able to control your, your bodily functions. That was a time when that happened. And that job was actually good for us. You know, we made uh, a nominal fee on that job. Would have been nice to have made an additional $5 million on it. There weren't only two bids. I mean, there were other bidders, but we did leave about a million dollars on the table, which, as you know, Anthony, you know, we were at $2 million, The next guy was at $3 million. Your listeners may not know what that term means, but we did okay on the job, but it happens all the time. And that's the biggest struggle that at least this community has here in Hawaii is that there's not a lot of real good civil estimating available for these engineers and they can't predict what the costs are going to be. But even me as a contractor, it's tough for me to explain how some of the prices are as crazy as they are and myself included. It's like going to Vegas every day. That's what these estimates are you know, on bid day. I mean, is there, based on all your experience in this field, when you do see projects that they get bid, a low bid gets you know, obviously accepted and it goes into construction and then the contractor ends up taking a bath on it because their low bid was really low, is it typically around like a certain part of the estimate? Like in other words, is it like the overhead ones that are usually harder to predict than the unit pro- that the, than the quantities? Or I would imagine it would be the overhead sometimes that people would forget about or they wouldn't factor in properly that could cause a problem. That's a million dollar question. I just gave you a good story where we did okay, but I had a job a few years ago where all we had to do was dig a four-foot trench in diggable dirt uh, about 4,000 feet long, and our price was a quarter million bucks, and, and I spent $800,000 on that job, and you wonder how these things can happen, and I've been trying to figure it out myself, but I think probably more often than not, it's probably the relationship in the field you talked about before. If you're my client out there, Anthony, and we've known each other a while, either from a, on a personal basis or likely on a professional basis, a lot of times that jobs, those jobs go a lot easier. 
But if the person out there in the field does not get along with the contractor, that makes it very difficult. And uh, the example you gave of 12 inches of rock versus six, you know, you have the right as the resident engineer to push that down my throat, if you will, and have me do it. But if you and I have a relationship where, all right, Scott, we got a problem. Let's just work it out. And that's a lot different than the opposite side, which is, you know what, just uh, sue me. And that's what some engineers will say. And frankly, that's what the contractor says. Yeah. And that goes back to what we talk about a lot on the podcast, the, the civil engineering world, and really, I mean, anywhere, but building good relationships, getting to know people in the industry. It's going to help you on your projects. I mean, it's not going to solve every problem, but it's certainly going to make some of these not so easy conversations to have a little bit easier when you have the respect and the relationship and, and time with dealing with someone for a long period of time. So I think that that can definitely be helpful. And my wife's a geotechnical engineer, so I know just as good as any civil engineer that you never know what you're going to get when you dig, which is probably one of the biggest kind of things that are up in the air on these construction sites is you hit rock 10 feet higher than you thought you were going to, the whole estimate is gone. Yeah. It costs a rock goes from $3 a cubic yard to $100 per cubic yard. Someone's got to pay for the 97 bucks. And uh, that's where the fight comes in. All right. So before we jump into our final segment, Scott, just for those listeners out there that are, do want to learn more about estimating, they want to get more involved with it. Is there any resources, I don't know whether it's a book or I don't know, any resources out there that could help them? On the engineering side of the house, if, if most of your listeners are engineering, RS means is a good way of at least getting introduced to cost con to estimating. I would say the best way to actually, as an engineer, and I don't want to spoil it for the next segment here, but I would say probably the best way to learn is to go out in the field and just see what how things are happening, how many people around the crew, whatever, things like that. But Frankly, a lot of the contractor estimating, you just don't learn until you work for a contractor and watch it and or you work for a contractor and you do it. Estimating is art and science, and the science part is an R as means, but the art is everything in there. We're worth swagging this and putting a dollar here and a million dollars over there. There's a lot of, like I said, art and science to it. Yeah, and I think the goal here with this episode, from my perspective, and the reason that I wanted to have Scott on was estimates are estimates. And like Scott said, it's art science, but then also something could happen. It could be completely up in the air. But the point is, is that if you work on enough projects as a civil engineer and you get comfortable enough with estimates, when you look at a proposal or when you look at a change order, you want to have a general feeling. This is realistic or this is unrealistic. And I think if you can do that, that's value for your client. That's value for your employer. So I want to get you exposed to estimates, even though you might not be doing them on a daily basis. Yeah, couldn't agree more. A lot of times I think if I was out there with Anthony and he and I were working on our sidewalk over the weekend, would we need 12 guys to do a sidewalk, you know, from here to 12 feet away? No, it's a lot of common sense. Absolutely. And the same thing happened just in, in civil engineering. When I was working as a designer, my boss would come to me and say, Anthony, we got a sidewalk job. Give me an estimate of how long it's going to take you to design X miles of sidewalk, blah, blah, blah. And I'd give him an estimate. He'd be like, really? It's going to, you need three guys to do this? Because he spent his time in the trenches. So it's like anything else. When you work in the field, when you work on the projects and you get to know about them, it just makes you better at what you do. It makes you more knowledgeable. So that's a good thing. All right. So on that point, Scott's going to stick around here for a minute. We're going to go into our CE hot seat segment and pepper him with a couple of uh, professional development questions. How's that sound, Scott? Sounds great, Anthony. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now it's time for a CE Hot Seat segment in which today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, PPI. If you're preparing for the civil PE exam, you probably know that the Civil Engineering Reference Manual by Michael Lindeberg is the book to use. Michael Lindeberg is actually the founder and president of PPI, the leader at FENPE exam prep. 
PPI has new prep courses available for the civil PE exam that offer complete coverage of not only the morning breath exam, but also your choice of afternoon depth exams. The course presents over 60 hours of new content and walks you through tons of exam-like practice problems. When you enroll in the live online prep course, PPI also includes on-demand lectures for free, so you can start studying while you wait for the course to begin. Through October 2017, PPI will be choosing two of our podcast listeners per month to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you enroll in this course. To enter the raffle, visit www.ppitopass.com forward slash civil prep. Again, that's www.ppi, the number two, forward slash civil prep. From there, you'll need to choose your course and check out. On the checkout page, enter the promo code prep and then complete your enrollment. Again, you need to enter the promo code PREP before completing your enrollment to qualify for the gift card. You'll be notified on the first of the month if you won the $100 gift card. I used PPI for my PE exam prep, so I feel confident in recommending that you check out this prep course. Plus, you could win $100. Good luck. All right, Scott, welcome to the CE Hot Seat. You ready to go? I'm ready. All right, first question. Are there any specific rituals that you practice every day? For example, do you have a specific morning ritual or lunchtime routine, things that you do consistently on a daily basis that contribute to you being successful as a professional? I think one of the things I learned in my career was I like to make a lot of phone calls early in the day to really important things that are going on right now. So when I was out on the field a lot and as a superintendent and we're out there laying pipe, for example, I want to make sure that the pipe was ahead of us. A lot of times the you couldn't get a hold of the pipe salesman or the guys back at the plant. So I always made sure to get the difficult and most impactful issues out of the way as early in the day as possible. Don't call at noon for pipe you need the next day. Call at 7.30 a.m. when the plant opens and start that conversation with the plant to make sure you're taking care of yourself and, and your project. Excellent. And of course, especially important when you're working in construction and everything is super time sensitive. So that's great. All right, next question. What is one book that you might recommend to engineers regularly or just one book that you have found to be extremely helpful in your professional and or personal development? I like to read a lot of books on business successes. I don't know if this really answers your question, but a lot of times I like to see what other successful business people have done. I'm looking at one of the books on my desk right now called The Greatest Business Decisions of All Time. I like to look to other business successful people and see what they did to get through it and try to emulate them to when it's applicable. I'm not sure I really have a particular book. I have some technical particular books, but as far as just, you know, succeeding in, in a career, I'm not sure I really have one. I just try to emulate what other successful people have done. It's, it's not rocket science. All right. I've got one final question for you, which we call the critical civil engineering career elevator advice question. So if you got into an elevator with a civil engineer and had about 30 to 40 seconds with him or her and had to give him or her career advice in that short period of time, what would it be? And you said earlier to get out in the field. So we'll say like in addition to that advice, because that's dynamite advice as well. But what's something else you might say in a short period of time? That was probably the most important thing is make sure you get in the field. A lot of times we find that engineers, they've never been in the field and they, they don't know why, say, you need stirrups on a 30-foot high column. It may not call for them engineering wise, but how else are you going to keep all the vertical rebar from splaying out and tipping over? You only learn that sort of thing in the field, the logical stuff. Besides just getting field experience, like I mentioned before, it's probably humility. I know that on the construction side of the house, a lot of laborers and project engineers in the field or people working on the contractor side feel as if a lot of the engineers aren't, don't have enough humility to, to actually realize that, hey, they can make a mistake and there is a better way to, to do things. And sometimes that advice comes from maybe a guy who never made it through high school. He's been doing it for 30 years and he frankly knows how to design a column better than you do from the aspect of constructability. 
So I would say, you know, keep an open mind, listen to anyone who will give you advice, especially when it's free, and uh, learn from that. I'll add to that from your previous comment as well earlier on about the idea of relationships. And when you know people, you're in the industry for a while, it can definitely help with some of these tough situations and tough conversations. Just make them go a little bit smoother. I mean, listen, there's always ups and downs in construction projects, but I think your experience and your relationships can help. All right. So Scott, thanks for joining us here on the Civil Engineering Podcast. It was great to have you. Where can our listeners find you or connect with you, whether it's LinkedIn or a website or I do have a LinkedIn account. Obviously, my name is Scott Jennings, and my entity is SJ Construction Consulting. You can find me on LinkedIn. I also have a website called sjcivil.com. We'll link to Scott's profile in the show notes. Please remember, you can find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com and look for episode 66. You will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. You can leave a question in the comments section or visit the Ask Us tab on the website. We monitor all comments and will respond if you leave us one. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.